Well, good morning, church. I'm glad that you are here. <clears throat> I apologize ahead of time for my, my throat and my voice. I've got my semi-annual crud. And uh, <clears throat> Randy Elrod's actually pretty excited about it. Uh, he asked me, uh, I was going down the hall earlier this morning, he said, hey, what's wrong? I said, I just got the crud. And his face lit up. He said, short message? And then, and I appreciate his concern for my health, and as if that wasn't enough, he said, I'll tell you why, he said, in the first service, you preach really long or really hard, and maybe you won't have much left for the second service. So, uh, <clears throat> thank you for your concern, Randy. Hey, uh, I want to pause before we get into this, I want to pause and thank you who worked in Vacation Bible School, so many of you. Uh, I think we had, I don't think I'm wrong on this, I think we had well over 100 people, workers, involved in Bible school. I'm not talking about the students, I'm talking about the workers. Well over 100 workers in Vacation Bible School. And that is just amazing, and God did some wonderful things. So thank you for all of our teachers, all of our workers, and I know you put in not just the, the time last week every night coming to church, but lots of time before that. Uh, to, to make all this possible. So thank you so much. I want to tell you what God did. Uh, first of all, we're going to be able to send a lot of money to the mission field. You know, we have a, an annual, each year we have an annual penny offering. It was just where kids try to bring as many pennies as they can. And uh, we weigh the pennies and they compete uh, each class against other classes. And this year in our penny offering for missions, this year our students gave a record amount of 1,842 pounds of pennies. Now, I don't know, that you don't seem shocked by that, but 1,842 pounds of pennies. This time we had to get a truck to carry it because Steve said, I am putting that in my car. My car won't carry that much. Now, I'll tell you how much money that is. Our students, and I know you parents were behind this, but our students gave $3,226. And literally, amen, go ahead. <clears throat> literally, every penny of that is going to go to missions. And in fact, we challenged our students this week saying, this past week saying, you know, whatever you give out of our missions budget, we're going to match every penny that you give. So we're going to be able to send a check this week, if they haven't done so already, we'll be sending a check to a church replant in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a church that we're praying about partnering with, and actually Chris and I will be going there in uh, August to kind of check things out. And we've told you some about that. Some of you heard the replant pastor come and speak here. Uh, but we're going to send them a check of nearly $6,500. It's a small church in downtown Nashville that's dying. And they have many, many needs. And our, through the giving of our children and, and through you, you, the parents, we're going to be able to send them about $6,500 to help them as they try to resurrect that dying church. And so to God be the glory. We're grateful for that. But the best news of all uh, is that as we presented the gospel, many children came forward. We counseled them individually. And nine children prayed to receive Christ this week. So we are grateful for that. Praise the Lord. Amen. In this summer series that we're, we are in, we're focusing on this question. Who did Jesus claim to be? Uh, you can read a lot about Jesus, lots of books about him, lots of things online, some of it good, some of it not. 
magazines, especially during time of Christmas or Easter, carry cover stories about who Jesus is. But the question we're looking at in this series is, who did Jesus claim to be? In his own words, what did he say about himself? Sometime during the first, uh, I'm sorry, sometime during the last quarter of the first century, there's a man named John who sat down to answer that question. Who did Jesus claim to be? John was an apostle of Jesus. That meant that he followed Jesus closely. He was around him a lot, spent a lot of time with Jesus. So John was with Jesus for about three years. And after that time together, John, knowing that he had firsthand knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus said about himself, John sat down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sat down with pen and paper, and told the story of Jesus. And he shared something that the other gospel writers didn't mention. John tells us that Jesus described himself with seven I am statements. That Jesus actually seven different times described himself with these I am statements. So last week we started looking at these in earnest. Last week we talked about I am the bread of life. And today we're going to look at the second I am statement of Jesus. It's found in John chapter 8 verse 12 where Jesus declared I am the light of the world. Open God's Word if you haven't already, John chapter 8, verse 12. John chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know, you can learn a lot about a passage by simply asking questions about that passage. Sometimes simple questions can transport us back into time, and we're looking at the story from the eyes of the original audience. If we'll take the time to ask the right questions, it can transport us back to the original audience. We, we kind of get a sense of, of what they felt and what they saw and what they heard. It, it helps to ask questions, and sometimes they're simple questions that we're asking the text. But if you will bombard a text with questions any text, not just this one, but any text in the Bible, if you want to understand it, bombard that text with questions. And you won't get all of your answers, you won't get every question answered, but you will understand the text far deeper than you would if you didn't ask any questions at all. And so, uh, here's what we're going to do today. I, I know that we've got a lot of people out on vacation, it's the summertime and all that, so I'm going to relax a little bit, I hope you, you will relax a little bit. I'm just going to teach today, all right? And so let's just pick up the story. I'm going to need your participation today. Let's look at the statement again. The second I am statement, John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke, what's that next word? When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. I want you to notice that word again. Let's take that word out of the text for a moment. See if this verse still makes sense if we take the word out of the text. When Jesus spoke to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure it does. So the question is this, why is that word again there? What does that word again imply? Well, if you look at it very closely, it's pretty easy to discern, isn't it? The word again, when he said Jesus spoke again to the people, it means that what he is about to say is based on something he's already said. That he's going to speak to the same group of people again that he spoke to previously. 
And so with that context in mind, I want to ask three basic questions today of this text. I want you to help me in that. We're going to bombard the text with three simple questions. And these simple questions can reveal some powerful insights. So let's ask the first question. The first question I want to ask this text is the word or the question, when? When did this take place? If you want to find the answer, you have to do a little digging, and I've already done it for you, so let me help you with that. If you want to know when this took place, go back to chapter 7, verse 1. We begin to get the context of when Jesus made this statement. Chapter 7 of John, we're going to read several verses here. He said, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when, there's the word we're looking for, but when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then notice this statement in verse 5. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Isn't that amazing? Even his own brothers didn't believe in him. But, but if you've got a brother, you understand what that's like. What if your brother said, I am the Messiah? Would you have a little problem believing that? If you saw him grow up, if he grew up in your home, would you struggle just a little bit believing he is Messiah? Of course you would. So did his brothers. Let's pick up the story, verse 6. Therefore Jesus told them, the right time for me... Now, his, let me pause for a moment. The brothers were saying, hey, we really don't think you are who you say you are. And they're kind of making fun of him. And so why don't you go to Jerusalem? Why don't you perform some miracles up there? Why don't you just kind of show everybody who you, I mean, you got disciples up there. They're waiting on you. Why, why don't you go to Jerusalem and, and, and go put on your show if you are who you say you are? Verse 6, therefore Jesus told them, that is his own brothers, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. That is, you can go whenever you want to. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. <clears throat> he says to his brothers, you go to the feast. I'm not yet going. He didn't say I'm not going. He said I'm not yet going. You go to the feast. I'm not yet going up to the feast because for me, the right time is not yet Come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. And so in Jerusalem, everybody is there for the Feast of the Tabernacles. We'll talk about what that is in just a moment. Just want you to get the, the idea of what's happening. As everybody is there, there are, some people are anticipating, where is he? We've heard a lot about him. We expected him to be here. This is a Jewish festival after all. So where is this man? And then they've started talking about his identity. Who is this man? Well, some said... Some said he's a good man. People today still say that, don't they? Jesus was a good man. I've heard people say that. I'll say to someone, to you, who is Jesus Christ? Oh, he was a good man. They were saying it back then as well. And then others said, no, he deceives the people. 
And so there, there was this division about his identity. Let's continue the story. Again, we're asking the question, when? And we're reading through the text trying to answer that question. Verse 14, now until halfway, I'm sorry, not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. Now the Feast of Tabernacles lasted eight days. So halfway through the feast, about the fourth day or so, Jesus goes up there. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Let me give you a little bit more of the context here. Mark this down if you're taking notes. John chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9, all those three chapters are dealing with the Feast of Tabernacles. All three chapters deal with what happened at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was an annual celebration that lasted eight days in the seventh month of their calendar. It, it, it basically, they uh, observed that around our, our September-October time period. It was at the end of the harvest, but it wasn't really about a harvest time. It was really a celebration that commemorated the faithfulness of God to the Israelites as they journeyed through the desert towards the promised land. You remember the Old Testament story? How, how God led them and provided bread for them and water for them. And so the Feast of Tabernacles, because, and it's called that because they, they lived in tents as they traveled. They didn't have permanent housing. They were, they were traveling. They were tabernacling. And so it's the Feast of Tabernacles, an annual, remember that word, annual celebration. Lasted eight days, commemorating God's faithfulness to his people to provide for their needs. Now, each morning <clears throat> during that week, each morning of the Feast of Tabernacles, for eight days, each morning, the priests would go to the Pool of Siloam and pour out, or, or gather water rather, take it to the western side of the, of the brazen altar and pour the water out. And it was a commemoration of how God in the desert provided water for them. So every day for eight days, they poured this water out in celebration of how God provided for their ancestors in the desert. Now, when that happened, it's interesting what Jesus did. Look in chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day, what day was it, church? Last day. So it was which day? Numerically, it would have been the eighth day. I think, I just make sure you're with me. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, probably as they were pouring this water, on the, on the western side of the brazen altar, Jesus stood and said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me to drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now, we could take the time to deal with that, but there's so much there. We're just reading it for the context. We're still trying to dig into this question a little bit about when. So stay with me and skip down to verse 53. <clears throat> Verse 53, now, each went to his own home. That is, out on the end of the eighth day, everybody went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, which would be technically the ninth day, the celebration, the festival is over. At dawn, the next day, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, here's the question. Let me ask you this question. Look, look this way for a second. I know you're taking notes, you're reading, and I'm glad you are. Let me ask you a question. Why, why do you think it was dawn? Why, why didn't he sleep in that day? You know, it's, you know, it's kind of like vacation Bible school. After vacation Bible school, you just want to rest, right? So we've had eight days of celebration, morning and night. We've had eight days. Why the next day did he get up at dawn and go to the temple? Well, let me tell you what happened. They would 
part of the Feast of the Tabernacles, not only did they pour out water, but part of the celebration, they also lit lamps in the temple court. Every night, for eight nights, they would light two lamps on one side of the temple court and two lamps on the other side of the temple court. These were large oil lamps, and they put out a lot of light. In fact, one historian said you could see the light in the the temple court from all over Jerusalem. And you know, when it's dark, you can see light a long way off. And so, guess what they did? Every night, they lit the lamp, or the lamps. Those lamps burned all night long. And then, in the morning, at dawn, they would extinguish the lamps. Come back the next night, light the lamps, burn all night long. At dawn, they would extinguish the lamps. So when Jesus goes to the temple court, he's going at dawn on the last day, basically just as the Feast of Tabernacle has ended. Many scholars believe that as they were extinguishing the lights for the last time until the next year, as they were extinguishing the lights, Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. You light these lights once a year. One time a year annually, you light these lights and you have to light them again. You light them again for eight days and you light them again. You put them out and you light them again. But I am the light of the world. Some people say, no, that's really not the reason he said what he said or when he said it. Some people say the reason he, he came at dawn was because, you do, do you know what dawn is? Dawn is that time period right before the sun breaks the horizon. Some people think that Jesus went to the temple courts at dawn... And so as the sun was breaking the horizon, as they saw the beautiful sunrise, then he declared, I am the light of the world. He said, well, pastor, which is it? I mean, was it Jesus Jesus because he put out the, the, the lamps and he was declaring, I am the light of the world? Or is it because of the sunrise and he was declaring, I am the light of the world? You know what I think? It doesn't matter. No, what I think is this. I think it was probably both. Just my, just my theory, I've got no scripture for that. But I really think it's probably both, that as they were extinguishing the lamps at dawn, and as the sun was coming up, the Son of God stood before them and declared, I am the light of the world. I am the light everyone needs. And I love the way that he declares this, I am the light of the world. So, That's the first question. When did it occur? We now know when he said this. It was at dawn after the Feast of Tabernacles. As the sun was coming up, as the temple lights were being extinguished, Jesus stood up, the Son of God, and declared, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's the first question. Second question is what? Get your pen. You're going to have to write fast because I'm running out of time. So you need to write faster, okay? All right, so what? What did Jesus mean when he declared, I am the light of the world? People living on planet earth are very familiar with the sequence of day and night. Anybody, anywhere in the world is very familiar with the sequence of day and night. doesn't matter. I've been to some remote places in Africa and China and all over the world. It doesn't matter where you go. Everybody understands the sequence of day and night. They understand darkness and light. So it's no surprise that in many languages and in many lands, light and darkness are used as metaphors. Light usually symbolizes what is good. Darkness almost always symbolizes what is bad. And so when John opened his letter, let me remind you in John chapter 1, turn back there. 
When John opened his letter, let me remind you what he said about Jesus and what he said about light. John chapter 1 verse 4. In him, that is Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There's a struggle, isn't there, between the darkness and the light. There's a struggle within all of us with the darkness. There's a struggle within all of us and around all of us with spiritual darkness. In fact, put your finger there, go over to the right to Romans chapter 13. Let me show you something. Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verse 12. If you're taking notes, write down that reference. It's a great verse that you might want to mark in your Bible. Romans chapter 13, verse 12 says this. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of what? A darkness. It's time for us to put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. We don't have time to read it, but it says, People living in darkness... A light has dawned. You see, when Jesus declared, I am the light of the world, he was simply saying, I, watch this, I am the light that everybody in the world needs. Because everybody is living in spiritual darkness. Everybody is consumed with spiritual darkness. There's not a person in the world who has not experienced the darkness around us and in us. But listen to me, church. Somebody please say amen to this. There is not a person in the world that has to stay in the darkness of their sins. Because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And nobody has to stay in the darkness of their sins. Nobody has to stay, stay under the dominion of the evil one. There's not a person in the world who can conquer the darkness around them or conquer the darkness within them, but that there is the light of the world who can do it. Jesus is the light that leads to life. And only He can overcome the darkness that envelops us. And remember this. If you're taking notes, write this down. Remember this. Light defeats darkness every time. Every time. Light always defeats darkness. Now, Take a moment and go with me to Colossians and see what Paul said about light and darkness. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. <clears throat> it says, speaking of Jesus, Paul wrote these words. He said, for he has rescued us. Note that word, underline it in your Bible. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. You know what Jesus has done for you? If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, He has rescued you from the dominion of darkness. You couldn't get out. You couldn't free yourself from the darkness you were living in. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. When I read this verse, <clears throat> when I read this verse, I, I immediately thought about the dramatic rescue of the boys trapped in the cave in Thailand, living in darkness, trapped in darkness for 18 days, living in the darkness of that cave for 18 days. And, and I came across a, a, an article that a guy named <coughs> Dave Russell uh, uh, wrote, 
And, and I just want it's, to, it's a little bit long, but it's worth it if you'll be patient and listen to this. He said, as I followed the news reports of their dramatic rescue the couple of weeks, past couple of weeks, I couldn't help but think about the spiritual parallels to Christianity. Listen to this. And it's okay to say amen if you want to while I'm reading this, all right? Listen to what he said. He said, first of all, they were hopelessly trapped. Once the cave was partially flooded, they couldn't get out. They would have to swim for hundreds of meters underwater, and most couldn't even swim at all. Escaping on their own was impossible. The Bible teaches us that we are hopelessly trapped in sin as well. We can't get out on our own. We can't overcome our own addictions and our own habits. We are slaves in our own darkness. Then he said, number two, they were destined to die. If no one came to the rescue, they were doomed. It's just a matter of time. The Bible says we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We are destined for hell without hope and without God in the world. See, when you're trapped in the darkness, you have no way to get out. Then he said, number three, someone with superior resources came to rescue them. Thailand's Navy SEALs with oxygen masks and scuba diving gear endangered their own lives to rescue them. And Jesus, the Son of God, came from the protected environment of heaven into the hostile world to rescue us and lead us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Number four, he said, there was only one way out. I love this. The Thai Navy SEALs proved by their very presence that there was a way of escape, that the... by their very presence, when they showed up on the scene, by their very presence, they were demonstrating there is a way out. There is a way of escape. But that was the only way. And Jesus said, I am the way and truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Let me tell you something. Jesus is the light of the world, and he is the only light of the world. There is no other way out of the darkness. Number five, he said, the rescue required trust. Those young athletes had to put their faith in someone who obviously knew more than they did. They had to trust in a person and follow him for as long as three and four hours through a narrow path of, through the cave. He said, that's faith. And Jesus said, follow me. Put your faith in me. And I will, because re- I, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live. He said, number six, everyone rejoiced with their rescue. He said, I have a friend who told me that he was riveted to the television and wept for joy when all 12 boys were saved. And the Bible says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Then he said, finally, number seven, their salvation cost the life of one Navy SEAL. There was one rescuer who paid the ultimate sacrifice. The soccer team's salvation was not without a high cost, and ours isn't either. The Bible says we were bought with a price, the precious blood of the Lamb of God. Now, can can you imagine? Can you imagine that after the seals brought 11 of the boys out and after they came back for the coach, he was the last one, still sitting in the darkness. Can you imagine the coach sitting there saying, no, I'm good. Kind of like it here. No. Or could you imagine the coach saying, I'm pretty sure there must be another way out. I'm going to try my best to find another way. I don't like the way you're going. I don't want to swim. I'm going to find my own way out. No. The only way out of the darkness was to follow the rescuer into the light. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, 
He was saying, there's not anybody in the world who doesn't need me. Because everybody in the world is in darkness, spiritual darkness. And the dominion of darkness is real. The darkness within you and the darkness around you. And the only way out of the darkness is through Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Well, that brings me to the final question. The final question we're asking this text is how? This is one that that ought to blow your mind. How? How did the people respond? When Jesus declared, I am the light of the world, when when he basically was saying, I am Messiah you've been looking for, I am the one the the Old Testament prophesied about, how how did the people respond? Look in chapter 8, in verse 12, he said, I'm the light of the world. Verse 13 is their response. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And there's this whole discussion following that where Jesus basically, at one point he says, you're sons of Satan. That's pretty strong preaching, isn't it? Look in chapter 8, verse 48, how they responded. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are, you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Verse 57, you're not yet 50 years old, the Jews said. And you, have, and you say you've seen Abraham? And he says in verse 58, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. How did they respond? It's amazing. The light of the world was standing in front of them. The Messiah was in their presence, and they were too blind spiritually to even see him. So Jesus left them. And don't miss what he did. Watch this. He left those who were spiritually blind, and guess what he did in chapter 9? He left those who were spiritually blind in chapter 8, and in chapter 9, he healed a man who was physically blind. No coincidence. See, I told you before, often there was a miracle, then there was the declaration of who Jesus is. Here, the order is reversed. There's the declaration, and then there was the miracle. Chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am, I am the light of the world. I love how Jesus moved from the universal, the light of the world, to the individual who was in desperate need. Look in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, and wash in the pool of Siloam. This means sent. The man went and washed and came home seeing. Came home seeing. He had lived in darkness all of his life. And then he met the light of the world. And he came home seeing. Now, the question is, why? Why did Jesus do this? Thankfully, John tells us in chapter 12, we'll close with this. John chapter 12, skip over a few chapters. Go to John chapter 12, verse 35. Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little longer. Walk 
while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he was going. Put your trust in the light. Underline that. Highlight it. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. And then look at verse 46. Boy, this is a verse you ought to have marked in your Bible. Verse 46, John chapter 12, verse 46. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. That's why he came as the light of the world, to take you out of your darkness. Underline, no one should stay in darkness. I'm here today to tell you, you don't have to stay in darkness. You don't have to live in darkness. You can choose to follow the light of the world and experience the light and the life he provides. Now, I'm going to close with this story. Back when kids used to play outside, Back when kids used to play outside, and I was one of them, one of the things that we did before we had Fortnite and all those kind of things, back when kids used to play outside, I don't know about you, but in East Tennessee, we'd find big rocks and we'd turn them over because there was a show under the rock. If you ever did that, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? When you turned over the big rock, guess what was underneath there? All kinds of bugs and spiders and, and worms, and you just watch them. And guess what happens? Once the light would shine on them, what would they do? They go scurrying down into the hole, scurrying down into darkness. That's where they're comfortable. It's no accident that John wrote in John chapter 3, verse 19, these words. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness because their, e their deeds were evil. And so I've come today to simply say this. There's nobody in the world who doesn't need Jesus. There's nobody in the world who has to stay in darkness, but everybody has to decide Everybody has to decide if they're going to walk into the light or go back into the darkness. Would you bow your heads with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Have you gotten comfortable in the darkness? Maybe that's just the way Satan's been working in your life lately and, and he's pulled you and pulled you into the darkness so much but I want you to know, you don't have to stay there. Jesus is the light of the world. He can change your life. You don't have to live in darkness. You don't have to stay in darkness. And right now, some of you perhaps, you're living in darkness and you know it. You, you, can, you can just experience it every day, every night. You feel the darkness around you. But you don't have to stay there. No, thankfully, there is one who came to rescue us. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, today I'm going to ask you to cross over from death to life. In the Bible, death is always signified by darkness. Life is always signified by light. Hell is described as outer darkness. It's death. Light is always described as life. Did you put your faith in Christ today? Or Christian, 
If you've already put your faith in Christ, are you a follower of the light? Jesus said, you need to follow me. Are you living like a follower of the light? Did you know that Paul wrote in Ephesians these words? He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. He says, find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Rather, expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything is exposed by the light and becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. And that is why it is said, Awake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Maybe as a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been, you've been hanging out in the darkness some. And today is the time for you to reject that, to renounce that, to repent of that, to turn away from that. And follow the light, the Lord Jesus. Father, in His name and for His glory. We pray, amen.